Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. tonight is Nir Eyal. Nir is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and expert in behavioral design. He received his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Nir's focus is the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. His work has been featured in Forbes, Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, and now The Human Experience. Nir, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for being here. Welcome to HXP. Oh, my pleasure, Xavier. Thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, I think more than ever, this book is so important. Um, but, you know, for people who haven't encountered your work yet, let's just set a little bit of groundwork. Uh, you know, tell us who you are and what you do, please. Sure. So I'm what you call a behavioral designer. I help companies build the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. So I help companies design products that are used out of habit. Uh, So I work with companies in the uh, medical device space, so getting people to remember to take their medicine or to use a medical device. Uh, I've worked with companies in the health and fitness space, uh, such as FitBod is an app that gets people to exercise in the gym more. Uh, I've worked with and invested in in education companies like Kahoot that uh, get kids to uh, to be more engaged in classroom learning, I've worked with the New York Times to uh, get people hooked on their on their app. So there's all kinds of ways that we can use behavioral design to help uh, people form good habits. And then the the flip side, and the reason I wrote my second book, my first book was called Hooked, and it was about how to build habit forming products. My second book, Indistractable, is about the other side. It's about how do we break bad habits, particularly these habits that have to do with distraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that right away. I, I thought, you know, it's it's a bit bipolar. You know, you're connecting mm-hmm. these two completely opposite dots. And it's interesting, you know, because in the first book, you which went to, into bestseller, you are teaching people how to kind of get uh, build products that that hook, you know, customers. And then in, in this book, Indistractable, you're teaching people how to disconnect from those products. Well, they're not the same products. <laughs> Let's be very clear. So nobody's nobody's getting addicted to enterprise software. Kids are not getting addicted to uh, educational software. Uh, people aren't exercising too much because of their fit fitness apps. Uh, that that's not the problem. the The problem is when we overuse a different type of of product, the ones that distract us. Right? We uh, watch too much news. We drink too much booze. We aren't Facebook too much. We spend too much time on email when we intend to do something else. So it's really two sides of the same coin. And I think we can actually have our cake and eat it too. 
we can build products and services that are more engaging, right? Again, nobody has a problem with overusing educational software to learn a new language or to exercise more. And guess what? Technology can help us do these wonderful things and help us build good new habits in an amazing new way. Uh, but then, the, of course, the other side of the equation is what about the products that we overuse? Uh, mm-hmm. What about you know the, the, the various things that sometimes can entertain us but for many of us, lead to distraction, and so that's why I think I'm 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 particularly well qualified for this uh, subject matter because you know given the, the the decade of experience that I have in this area, I know the Achilles heel of how these technologies are designed to hook you. I wrote the book about <laughs> right. how, how these products get you hooked, and so I can tell you exactly how to stop getting distracted from whatever it is that takes you off track. Yeah, I mean, I I really truly resonate with it, and I love the idea. And you know, I, I and some, something that you talk about in the first part of your book is detoxing digitally. You know, just that process of disconnecting from the internet. I mean, in a world where it seems like everything is connected all the time, it, you know, we Facebook, Twitter, all these social media places that we can kind of figure it out, figure out exactly what everyone is doing you know and then when we actually meet up with them we have nothing to talk about anymore you know it mm. it's changed so much the the sort of fabric of society why you know why do you think it's like that and you know why is digital digital detox so important well i'm actually not a fan of digital detox i talk about in the book how i i, I don't uh, advise people to do that uh and i don't advise people to do that for the same reason that uh uh, any kind of temporary diet doesn't work. So my, my personal story is the reason I got into this field of behavioral design started from a very young age. I was always fascinated by how various products and services can change our behavior, starting with food. Uh, I used to be clinically obese starting as a child for a, a good chunk of my life. I was clinically obese. And I noticed that, that food seemed to have control over me. And so one of the things that I did uh, was I would go on a, uh, on a diet. And uh, typically, they were these 30-day plans, you know, they, these 30-day, uh, don't eat any carbs for 30 days, or don't eat any fat for 30 days, or no fast food for 30 days. And then guess what would happen on day 31? You know, I'd make up for lost time. I eat everything I could possibly find. Right. <laughs> and that's why diets, temporary diets, don't work. Because you just balloon back to what you were previously. And the reason they don't work is because you haven't figured out why you're overeating in the first place. I wasn't overeating because I was hungry. I wasn't even overeating because the big bad food manufacturers, McDonald's and Burger King were doing it to me. I wanted to blame those guys, but that's not true. I was overeating because I was eating my feelings. Mm. I was eating when I was bored. I was eating when I was lonely. I was eating when I felt guilty about overeating. Mm -hmm. And guess what, folks? This is why we get distracted. So we need to stop blaming the tech companies. And I know people don't want to hear this. Everybody wants to blame the tech companies because it's so easy. It's so convenient. We have a ready-made scapegoat in some big, bad tech company in Silicon Valley. And I'm here to tell you, it's BS. It's not true. We do that, and it's disempowering. It actually, funny enough, makes it so. This is called learned helplessness. When we blame something outside of ourselves, what happens is when most people say, oh, I'm addicted to technology or they're hijacking my brain, guess what? They stop trying to do anything about it. Now it's outside of their control. And that's what I'm trying to fight. I want to empower people to do something about the problem instead of just complaining about the problem. Because here's the thing. One of the first things I learned over the past five years of research writing this book is that distraction is nothing new. You know, people love to talk about how Oh, these days, man, technology this and society that and things have never been worse. And it's all rubbish. Mm -hmm. It's always been this way. Always been this way. Socrates and Plato talked about the nature of akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interest, 2,500 years before the iPhone. Distraction is nothing new. It has always been here. It will always be here if you are looking for it. And so while technology is more pervasive and persuasive than ever before, we are still much, much more powerful than the technology companies or any distraction for that matter, if we know how to put distraction in its place. 
For sure. Yes, completely. I mean, I think it was a conversation that you had with your daughter where you realized, okay, these these distractions are robbing your life of this meaning that is essential to it, right? Right, right. So that's where that was really my turning point where I, I realized I had to reassess my relationship with distraction. I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned. Uh, and, and we just wanted to spend some time together, you know, just have some quality father daughter time. And I remember we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the activities in this book was to ask each other this question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said, because in that moment, I decided that there was something on my cell phone that I just had to respond to. I don't even remember what it was, but my daughter clearly got the message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she left the room to go play with some other, you know, some toy outside. And by the time I looked up for my phone to see where she was, uh, she was gone and, and I blew it. I missed this perfect moment with my daughter. And that's when I realized I, I really had to do something about this problem because if I was experiencing this problem, knowing as much as I do, uh, and the fact that it wasn't just occurring with my daughter, it was occurring when I would sit down at my desk and instead of working on a big project or writing that blog post or, you know, focusing intently on something I knew I had to do, I would procrastinate and I would check the news or check Google or, or, or scroll fa- uh, Facebook or who knows what instead of doing what I said I would do. Uh, it would happen when I would say I was going to exercise and I wouldn't. I would say I was going to eat right and I didn't. And I kept getting distracted from one thing or another all the damn time. And I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I came up with this term, indistractable. Indistractable sounds like indestructible, Mm -hmm. right? And I really do believe that becoming indistractable is the skill of the century. This is what is going to separate who lives the kind of life they know they are capable of and deserve and everyone else. It's the difference between people who let their time and attention and minds and lives be controlled by others versus those, that's, those that say to themselves, no, I will choose how I spend my time and my attention in my life. I am indistractable. That's amazing. I mean, there's so much of it that is empowering. And I guess that's where the psychology aspect of all this comes in. Because, I mean, as you said, you're no longer seeing yourself as a victim of you know this app, this evil app company or this mm-hmm. evil technology mm-hmm. company, you're taking your power back and realizing, okay, well, I have the power, the control to turn this off if I want to, you know? And right, right. so, so near, I'm curious, it, there's, there's distraction, right? So what would be mm-hmm. the opposite of distraction? Would that be traction? Yeah. Right, right. So this is, this is a, a really important concept in the book. If you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? I mean, the best way to understand something is to understand what it is not. And so let's try to understand what distraction is and is not. So most people, if you ask them, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you it's focus, but that's not actually true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. If you look at the origin of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from something you want to do, anything that is not what you are doing with intent. Mm. So this is a really important dichotomy for a few reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction, okay? Uh, How many times have you sat down at your desk and said, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to focus. I'm going to do the thing that I said I'm going to do. But first, let me check email, (laughs) right? And you say to yourself, well, email is a work-related task. That's still productive. I got to do that anyway, right? Wrong. That's what we call pseudo work. And it's much more dangerous. You know, when people think of distraction, they think about YouTube or the news or uh, a colleague tapping on them on the shoulder, you know, something that, that takes you off track. And they don't realize that that's not the most dangerous form of distraction. Because if you're, you know, if you're playing Candy Crush or watching a YouTube video at work, it's pretty obvious you're slacking off, right? Everybody knows, including you, that that is not what you intend to do with your time. However, 
The much more dangerous form of distraction is the one that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. Hmm. So when you sit at, down at your desk and you say, I'm going to work on that big project, but let me just check email real quick. You have allowed distraction to fool you. And that is much more dangerous than playing a video game or checking Facebook because it's hidden. It's lying to you and making you think you should be checking email when that's not what you plan to do. So anything that is not what you intended to do is a distraction, even if it's worky, even if it feels productive, because that's not what you intended to do with your time. So conversely, just like anything can become a distraction, anything can be traction. So this is where I really differ with uh, with some authors out there that tell you to go on a digital detox or digital minimalism or throughout your tech. And I tried that stuff. I, I, I really did. I went on a digital detox and I, I stopped using these technologies and said, okay, now I'm going to be super productive. I got rid of my cell phone and got a flip phone. I got rid of my laptop and, and just used every time I wanted to write, I used a word processor with no internet connection. And I still got distracted because I would say, oh, there's that book on the bookshelf or let me just clean my desk off or let me just take out the trash. And I kept getting distracted again and again. So distraction is not about the technology itself. It's about what it pulls you away from. And I would argue that there is absolutely nothing wrong with any of these technologies. If you want to check Facebook, go for it. If you want to watch a YouTube video, why not? If you want to enjoy a night of watching Netflix, there's nothing wrong with it. As long as you do it on your schedule, not the tech companies. And okay. I, I, yeah. I mean, that is the most important distinction out of all of this, you know, is that right. you're managing it on your time and not something else. And, and I think, you know, you start to in the book, you start to introduce that idea of psychologically recognizing, you know, the the internal triggers of what causes our behavior to change in certain ways that kind of you know, get us to do certain things and, and why we do them. So, you know, why, why would a person have a need to, you know, be checking Facebook constantly? Is it, yeah. is it validation that they're looking for? Is it that dopamine hit of, you know, just recognition, you know, it, or, you know, maybe, maybe they're on Twitter and they're, they're measure, measuring their value by how many retweets they get, how many likes they get. I mean, where does, where yeah, does so it happen? Let's dive into it. Sure. So we've got traction, the things that we say we want to do, things that we do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction. So now we have to ask ourselves, what drives us to these actions, either traction or distraction? Well, there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers. External triggers prompt us to action with some kind of information in our environment. And this is kind of the usual suspects. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, anything that prompts you to either traction or distraction. So the external triggers are not necessarily bad. Right. If you get a notification on your phone that it's time to go exercise or it's time for that important meeting and that's what you plan to do. Wonderful. There's nothing wrong with those external triggers. It's when those pings and dings take us off track away from what we plan to do that they lead towards distraction. And we can get back to this in a minute about how we can hack back those external triggers. I can tell you exactly how to put all of these external triggers in their place. But the reason I don't want to focus on that right now is because it turns out that the most common cause of distraction are not these external triggers, but rather it's about the internal trigger. So external triggers is about what's happening outside of us. But it turns out that most distraction does not begin from outside of us, but rather it begins from within us. That most distraction is prompted by one of these internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Mm. So this is really, really important. This is the first step to becoming indistractable is learning to master these internal triggers. So let's talk about this for a minute. If we are going to understand distraction, right, Plato's 2,500-year-old question of why do we do things against our better interests, we have to take this question and go a layer deeper. We have to understand a more basic fundamental answer to a question, which is why do we do anything and everything? What is the nature of human motivation? Mm -hmm. 
Most people will tell you that human motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? We've all heard this in one form or another. Uh, Freud called it the pleasure principle. It's about everything that we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns mm -hmm. out that's actually not right. It's not really true. That's an abstraction. If you actually look at what's happening in the brain, neurologically speaking, what motivates us is not the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It, rather, what motivates us is one thing, one thing only. Everything you do, everything you do is, is spurred by the desire to escape discomfort. Mm. Everything you do is about a desire to escape discomfort, even, even the pursuit of a pleasurable sensation, wanting, craving, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts. Because neurologically, that is exactly what is going on. Any desire, any wanting, any craving that you want, that you desire, is psychologically destabilizing. Even if it is for the pursuit of pleasure, what really prompts you to act is this uncomfortable psychological response. Now, this is common sense when we think about this in the body, right? The physiological response to some kind of discomfort is action to relieve that discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. I'll give you some examples. Hmm. If you go outside and it's cold, you, the brain says, oh, this is uncomfortable, so it tells you to put on a jacket. If you uh, are hungry, you feel hunger pangs, the brain says, oh, this is uncomfortable, so it makes you eat. If you are stuffed, you ate too much, now the brain says, this is uncomfortable, so you stop eating. So physiologically, everything you do is about this homeostatic response, restoring this discomfort imbalance uh, to get you to, by doing some kind of action. Now, what is true for the body is also true for the emotion. So when you think about what prompts us to act from a psychological basis, think about it for a minute. When you're lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, Google. When you're bored, well, you check sports scores, you check uh, Pinterest and Reddit and, oh, the thing that everybody's doing right now, the news. Oh, my God. How much time do we spend watching the goddamn news because we don't want to deal with our own problems? Mm -hmm. Let me worry about somebody else's problems somewhere halfway around the world that I can't do anything about, right? It's, it's this fear industrial complex that allows us to take our mind off of our problems by thinking about somebody else's problems, even though nine times out of ten, we can't do anything about what the news is making us scared about. It's just an escape mechanism from something we don't want to feel. We don't want to feel and deal with our own problems so we can avoid that by watching the news, letting the news get us frightened and, and, and terrified about what's going on. So at least, thank goodness, we don't have to think about what's happening in our own lives. So everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort. And once we realize this fact, we can do something about it. And that starts by understanding the root cause is always the root cause of distraction, procrastination, delay is always the same thing. It's not a, a character flaw. It's not even a, a, a dysfunction of self-control. It's nothing more than an inability to deal with discomfort. And so if there's one thing I want everyone listening to the sound of my voice to remember is that if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means, therefore, that time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Incredibly important. Time management is pain management. If you can't deal with these uncomfortable sensations, then you will always be distracted by something. Today, it's too much Facebook. Tomorrow, it's too much TV. The next day, it's too much news, too much booze, too much whatever. When I was overeating, it was about my inability to deal with discomfort. It wasn't the food, for God's sakes. It's not the technology. Mm. It's about our inability to cope with these uncomfortable sensations. The good news is we can learn how to deal with this discomfort in a healthier manner so it leads us towards traction rather than distraction. And thank goodness the techniques are actually not that difficult. Anyone can learn them in, in, in just a few minutes about how to uh, master these internal triggers so that they don't constantly lead us towards distraction. Yeah, I mean it's near – it's crucial. I think if, if there's anything that I took away from this book, it was that. You know, It was that 
I'm I'm using these distractions in my life not because you know I'm addicted to whatever these things are. I mean that might be true as well, but but the main reason that this is that I'm doing this that I'm attached to this is because internally somewhere deep inside I'm just trying to you know run away from something that I feel that makes me uncomfortable and it makes me it it kind of reminds me of you know a swinging pendulum like you know it just swings back and forth and each time it gets to an uncomfortable place you know it swings again and you know so i mean it's it's amazing that you know you you've you've sort of diagnosed this and it makes so much sense i mean it's almost like common sense but you know as they say you know common sense is not so common these days but um you know and you, you talk about you talk you start to talk about uh the the four factors that that make uh, this satisfaction temporary right so um you know you, you talk about how it it rarely lasts like this satisfaction mm-hmm. that we get out of using these these things that we run away uh, these things that we use to to run away from what we feel the the satisfaction that they give us it's temporary it doesn't last so what do we t- let's talk about that what are those four mm-hmm. factors and how do we apply those things you know and in, in, into our learning yeah so there's there's a few things that we are hardwired for uh that lead us to distraction that 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 may make us uh predisposed to never being satisfied for very long and and the more important concept here is to face this fact that our species is not designed for satisfaction. We are not designed to be perpetually happy, right? And this is part of my beef with the self-help industry these days is that people will tell you, oh, you know, if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with your life all the time, well, then something must be wrong with you, right? You probably need some kind of medication. You need to buy my program. You need to buy my course. You need to buy my book. I'm going to teach you how to be happy all the time. That is rubbish, If you think about it with some common sense from an evolutionary perspective, it would not make sense for a species to be happy and satisfied all the time. If there was ever a group of homo sapiens that was happy and satisfied, well, our ancestors probably killed and ate them, right? That, That would not be an evolutionarily beneficial trait to be satisfied. In fact, our species is designed through evolution. This is an evolutionary adaptation to be perpetually perturbed. Hmm. If you think about it, it's that dissatisfaction that keeps us hunting and searching and inventing and creating. This is what a huge part of why our species survived is because we always wanted better for our children, for our lot in life, for our species. And so it's unrealistic to expect us to always be happy all the time. And I think that's part of the problem is that people are so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. Mm. And that's a big problem because what we do, as soon as we feel the slightest emotional pinprick, I'm bored, I'm lonely, I'm uncertain, I'm, I'm scared, we reach for something. We look for something to take our mind off of that discomfort. And sometimes the right answer is not to reach for something to medicate ourselves, to take our mind off of our problems. Sometimes the solution is either to deal with with the problem where we can, or find methods to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner. So it's not reaching for something to take our mind off of our problem so that we can escape them, but rather something that helps us deal with that discomfort in a way that leads to traction rather than distraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so prescient. And I, I think it's so important, everything you're saying. And I think you nailed it. You know, I think it's it's so well said. And, you know, in my own life, I have to say that, you know, when I read your book, it was embarrassing to me because I think I would probably be a case study of everything not to do when, you know, you're you're trying to, you know, live meaningful moments because my habits are, you know, I wake up and I am a staunch workaholic. That's all. It's all I do. And I, I know, you know, I, I'm aware, I'm well aware that the reason that I'm using work is to run away from whatever is going on in my life. But I, and it even gets me high near. I mean, I, I love working. I just love it. 
And, you know, most of the time I just, I'll wake up, brush my teeth, make coffee, and I'm, I'm off to the races. And by the time I look up, I mean, I'm, I'm so immersed in what I'm doing that I haven't eaten all day and mm. I haven't, you know, I haven't contacted anyone that I care about. And it's it just, it's, it, I think, I think that our society has so become about output and, you know, like what you produce is your measure of value that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of disjointed, you know, some perceptions, even my own, but, you know, what would you recommend for a person that, you know, is constantly sort of running away from these, even though, you know, they're aware of it, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're just, maybe it's even in a functional way, right? Like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. being yeah. a workaholic, you know, it, it makes you feel productive, but it, like you said, it's that pseudo sort of fulfillment. It's, it's mm. not, it's not meaning, it's not in, it's not real, right? So, mm. what do you suggest to someone like me? I'm sure there are other people out there listening to this that, you know, feel the same way, think the same way, behave yeah. the same way. Yeah. So, I think the first thing is to, is to understand our mindset that most people, tend to fall into one of two categories when it comes to this this topic of, of distraction. We have what we call the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, when they get distracted, they, they blame something outside of themselves. Ah, oh, it's my iPhone that distracted me. It was my boss. It was, uh, you know, I hear this a lot. It's the world these days. Society is doing this to me. They blame something outside themselves. That's not a very effective tactic because you can't do anything about that. You can't change society, you know, with one fail swoop. These technologies are not going away. We can't roll back the, the hands of time. So that's a, that's a futile strategy. The other extreme is what we call the shamer. The shamer takes it on the inside, right? They say, there's something wrong with me. I have a short attention span. Look how lazy I, I am again. You see, I, I never get anything done. They shame themselves. And of course, that strategy doesn't work. Because when the, the worse we, the more we shame ourselves, the worse we feel about ourselves, the more we elicit these internal triggers, which make us feel even worse, which makes us even more likely to do what? Seek distraction to take our minds off of that discomfort. So that strategy doesn't work either. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be claimers. Claimers claim responsibility not for the, 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 the internal trigger, not for how they feel. This stuff isn't your fault. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent email. You didn't invent the nightly news. You didn't invent any of those things. They're not your fault, but they are your responsibility. So what you have responsibility over is not the internal trigger your, itself. You cannot control how you feel. That is outside of your control. What you can control is how you respond to those sensations, hence the word responsibility. And so when it comes to these, the, these uh, actions that proceed the, the internal triggers, that's where you do have control. That's where you do have agency. And it starts with, and this is the second step. We talked about the first step of mastering the internal trigger. Mm-hmm. The second step is to make time for traction. So I'm not going to tell you what you should do with your time, nor should anybody else. If you want to play video games all day, do it. If you want to work all day, go for it. If you want to take walks on the beach and that's how you want to live your life, no problem. I'm not going to tell you what you should do with your time. What I want to help you do is to spend your time according to your values. Values are defined as the attribute of the person you want to become. So I would argue if you sat down and turned your values into time, this is how you would get more traction in your day. And if what you want to do with your day is work all day, because that's incredibly fulfilling for you, I'm not going to stop you. Nobody should stop you. That's exactly what you should do. But you should do it with intent. Now, how do you do that? How do we turn our values into time? The best way to do this is to use what's called a time-boxed calendar. Here's the thing. You know, when it comes to our stuff, we protect it like crazy, right? The material possessions, we have security systems on our homes, we have alarms on our cars, we put money in the bank behind vaults so nobody can steal it. But when it comes to our time, 
anybody can come by and steal as much as they want, right? And so this is this is what most people don't realize is that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. Very important. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. If your calendar is full of white space, well, everything's a distraction, right? You didn't plan what you wanted to do with your time. So as long as you decide in advance what it is you want to do, go for it. Enjoy it, right? There's nothing wrong with it. So I have time in my day to go on Facebook, to enjoy social media, just like I have time for email and time for meetings. I schedule the important tasks in my life so that finally I know the difference between what is traction, whatever it is I plan to do, and distraction, anything that is not that thing I plan to do. So if what you plan to do all day is to work, that's wonderful. But make sure you plan that time in advance. Now, you have to also realize that it comes at a cost, right? There's an opportunity cost of what else you could be doing with your time. So, for example, if spending time with family and friends is important to you, well, is that time on your calendar? It's not just going to happen. Right. If time uh, with, with prayer or meditation is important to you, is that time scheduled? If if focused work time is important, time away from email and meeting is important to you, is that time on your calendar? If not, it's not going to happen. But anything that it, that is what you plan to do with your time is by definition traction. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it. I think this is one of the problems we have is that for many people, even when we have leisure time, right? This is this is what I call the tyranny of the to-do list. This is one of the myths I bust in this book. The, the book is full of myth busting. You know, there's this myth that to-do lists are how we get things done. And it turns out that for the vast majority of people, to-do lists are a big mistake. And here's why. To-do lists reinforce an identity that doesn't serve you. What does a to-do list tell you? Now, if you're like most people, most people have a to-do list, and about half of the things on the to-do list, if you're anything like I used to be, get recycled from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And what you're doing day in and day out is reinforcing, oh, another day went by, and I didn't do what I said I was going to do again, loser. And that identity becomes part of how you see yourself. As opposed to when you keep a time box calendar, you reinforce your identity as being indistractable at the end of every time block. And so what changes is that you're not measuring yourself based on all the things you finished. Because let's face it, you have very little control about how long it takes you to finish any particular task. I'm going to write this, this presentation. How long is it going to take me? I don't know. <laughs> it takes you a long time. You don't know exactly how long it's going to take you. Instead of, of, of reinforcing this identity that you still didn't finish something, what I want you to do instead with a time box calendar is to not plan to finish anything. What, what, what did I just say? <laughs> not plan to finish anything? That doesn't make any sense, right? Here's the thing. The goal should instead be one thing, to work on a task for as long as you said you would without distraction. That is the only way you're going to measure yourself. Not did I finish, did I, did I not finish? That's not important. What's important is did I work on what I said I would work on for as long as I said I would without distraction? Why? Because then when you do that, when you say I'm going to work on this big project for one hour without distraction, do nothing else, you're not only reinforcing your identity as someone who is indistractable, who does what they say they're going to do, more importantly, studies find that type of person is more productive at finishing their work than the person who keeps the to-do list. Isn't that amazing? That if you don't just focus on the finishing, just focusing on the focus, on, the, on working without distraction, you will end up being more productive. I love it. I love it so much. I mean, it's perfect. It's it's almost counterintuitive, but it makes so much sense and it fits perfectly. If you you know, plan. I mean, I think, I think just having a to-do list, as you said, it's, it's almost tyrannical and it, it, it boxes you in so much. I mean, it, it's, it's almost oppressive. You know, it feels like yeah. there's so much pressure to get this done and you end up stressing out about it so much that it never, nothing ever happens. You, like, you know, you, you it avoid just stays. It. Exactly. It, yeah. You say, Oh God, I've got 16 things to do on my to-do list. 
uh, let me just check email real quick <laughs> right? yeah. because you're looking to escape it. And here's the thing. You get to the end of your day and you say, oh, man, I had such a productive day. I just want to watch Netflix. I just want to relax for a little bit. I want to just want to spend some time with my family. But if you're the kind of person who keeps a to-do list like I used to, you still feel guilty. Oh, my gosh, I still have all those things I haven't accomplished. I shouldn't be enjoying myself right now because I should be doing something else. And you don't even enjoy the leisure time you deserve. As opposed to when you keep a time box schedule, you plan that time to be with your kid, time to to relax with some buddies, time to watch a video on Netflix. There's nothing wrong with that stuff because you plan for it and doing anything else becomes a distraction, right? That's exactly what you plan to do and you can do it without guilt. It's perfect. I love it. It's seamless. I mean it fits so much and I and I think that – if if I had to rank these in in order of importance, that would be the second one. You know, just free yourself from that tyranny of you know having to do all of these different things that you just end up stressing out about anyway. Um, you, right. you talk, you talk. About- you're, you're still going to get them done. I, I want to be very clear. I'm not telling you to be a slouch. You're st- you're going to be more productive at getting done all those things, but you're going to do it in a different way. You're going to use a time box calendar and plan when you want mm-hmm. to work on these things as opposed to. Just having a to do list. No, I'm, I'm glad that you that you re- reiterated that. Uh, I think that's important as well. You know, really putting down the things that you want to make time for. You know, like sp- mm-hmm. spending time with family. Mm-hmm. I absolutely want to do that, and I always find that I'm just so busy. I'm planning so much of working that. I never, I've never planned, you know, okay, spend time with family. I don't think I've ever put that down anywhere. You know, it's always just in my head and I intend for it, but it, it never goes into, you know, a list that I have. So that's, that's crucial as well. I mean, there's so much gold in this book. Um, you talk, I want to get into, you talk about, I didn't, I don't, I'm not sure if I understood this, you know, as much as I wanted to. You talk about how fun doesn't have to include enjoyment. Right. So mm. uh, there's, there's a, you know, in the distraction puzzle, as it were, you, you, you talk about the definition of fun and you write uh, about some insights from a professor. And, and I, I'm not sure if I really got, you know, this part of the book. If, if you could, I'm sure yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Sure. So this goes back to step one in terms of mastering the internal triggers. There's a few different techniques in the book about how to, uh, how to master these internal triggers. One of them is to reimagine the task itself. And so I, I, I quote from the work of, of Dr. Ian Bogost, who's a professor at, at Georgia Tech, and, and he wrote this great book called Play Anything. And the idea behind the book is that we've, we've misinterpreted this idea of how to, uh, how, how to uh, the, the role of fun and enjoyment in, in a task. So we've all heard the Mary Poppin method of adding a spoonful of sugar to something, right? If you, if you add a spoonful of sugar, uh, then, then you can make it a task more enjoyable and therefore you can get it done. And I think it misses the point a bit, according to, to Bogos, that in order for us to, to do a task and to play that task, it doesn't actually have to be enjoyable. It just has to focus our attention. Hmm. And so Bogos tells us that the way you know, if we, if, we, if we always need it to be enjoyable, that's a very, very high bar. But what we can actually find is that we can get into this almost state of flow, that we can, we can learn how to, have, how to play a task with, without it actually being enjoyable. So Bogos gives the example of cutting his grass, uh, which is something that he hated to do. He hated to cut his grass. It always was such a big chore. And so he wanted to learn and so he kept procrastinating, right? He kept getting distracted. He would say, okay, I'm going to cut the grass this Saturday. And he wouldn't. He would constantly procrastinate because of how, uh, how, he, how unfun that task was until he learned how to play the task. And what he tells us is that what we want to do is to not try and disassociate, right? Not to uh, ha- uh, heap on a spoonful of sugar to cut the bitter taste of the task, but rather to focus more intensely on the task. So he tells us, that he, uh, he he went to the hardware store and he learned everything he could about his grass, right? A, a boring subject that he didn't know anything about. But then the more he learned about it, all the different types of grass and seed and fertilizer, he became more interested in it. So he focused more intensely on the task. And then the second step is to add variability, add some kind of mystery. And interestingly enough, by the way, this variability 
is at the heart of what makes all kinds of things interesting. It's what makes a book fun to read. It's what makes spectator sports fun to watch. It's what makes the news interesting. The first three letters of news are is N-E-W, right? What's new, what's different. And so if you can add variability, if you can add uncertainty to finishing a task, that can hold our attention and help us do that task. So he talks about how when he learned to cut his grass, he, uh, he, he would challenge himself to see how quickly he could cut the grass. You know, what was the most efficient shape to cut the grass? Now, this is just one silly example of cutting the grass, but it turns out that people do this for all kinds of things that would otherwise be quite mundane. Uh, so, you know, if you think about how is it that somebody out there finds the thing that you dread doing to be very engaging, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about, uh, you, know, for, for, you know, think about the, the, the car buff, that just loves to tinker on their car. Now, you would have to pay me a lot of money to fix a car. That is not something that sounds interesting at all to me. And yet, for my buddy who loves tinkering on his car, he does it with pleasure. Uh, I have another friend who loves to knit. You you would have to pay me serious money. It looks so boring to knit. And yet, my friend loves knitting. Now, I'm sure if I followed Bogo's advice of focusing more intently on the task, finding the variability, I would also find the fun. And I too could learn how to enjoy fixing a car or learning to knit, even though today I I don't find those things fun. I could learn how to play those tasks as well. And so that's where he gives us this advice on how we can reimagine all sorts of tasks so that they're not so, uh, not so boring, not so full of drudgery. Okay. So, Nir, I mean, just to make you aware, we've got about 17 minutes. So I want to start to wrap this together in a nice... (laughs) We've got so much more. (laughs) So, okay. So I've got a couple questions left and a couple topics I want to hit before we do that, though. But, um, okay. So you talk about outcome independence. You know, I, I hear this a lot. I hear this verbiage a lot about, you know, detaching from the outcome, not thinking about the outcome and just sort of being in the moment and going with the flow of things and just allowing things to unfold as they do naturally. And, you know, just being sort of mindful and in the moment, you know, so, so why is outcome independence important, you know, as a a traction builder? Well, it's really about deciding what it is that you want to do with that time. So when we when we go back to step two around making time for traction, it's about being fully present, whatever that thing is you want to do. So if you want to spend time with your kid, spend time with your kid without worrying about what's on your phone. If it's if it's doing a particular task, focus on just that task. Anything that you're working on, even if you're watching a, a movie or, you know, enjoying playing a video game. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that stuff as long as that's what you plan to do with intent, as long as you plan to do that task in advance. So that goes back to turning our our values into time uh, by by making time for traction in our day. Hmm. Okay. And relationships, you know, uh, I mean, this is so important because there was there was a friend of mine and, you know, he's very successful and and. You know, I, there was there was a point even where you know, like I looked up to him so much because of how much success that he had in his work life. But you know, behind the scenes, it wasn't so good. You know, it, it, his he was you know suffering a lot in his personal relationships with his his wife, and you know, it, it so it, it can be so detrimental when we're not you know focused on how much these distractions can affect you know, the people closest to us in our lives. So, you know, how can we be more aware of, of you know, how we connect with other people and, you know, building, building that up more so that we're making time to do that? Yeah. So there, there's, uh, I met my wife, uh, 18 years ago. Uh, sorry, we've been married for 18 years. I met her 22 years ago, but we met in a, uh, in an economics class in college and uh, there was this term that we learned in this this freshman economics class uh, called residual beneficiary. A residual beneficiary is the person uh, or entity that gets what's left over when a company is liquidated. So when a company goes out of business, the debt holders get their share first, then the equity holders, then last comes the residual beneficiary. They get whatever change is left over. And I remember my, my wife told me a few years ago before I embarked on, on learning how to become indistractable in this five years of research I put into this book, she, she told me one day, you know, look, you have made me into the residual beneficiary. 
right? I get whatever scraps of time are left over. And she was right. It wasn't fair because I wasn't planning that time for her. And if she is the most important person in my life, I need to make time for that relationship. And I, I think this goes not only for our, our relationships with our, with our domestic partners, with our significant others. I think this rule also applies to our relationships, to our friendships. Um, this is why we are suffering from a loneliness epidemic in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as obesity and smoking. It is a serious public health problem. Yes. And the reason this is happening, it's not because of technology. This is a problem that Robert Putnam talked about in his book, Bowling Alone, uh, in the 1990s. He wrote that book in the early 90s. And what he noticed was is that there was a decline in civic organizations. These organizations, the bowling league, the church group, uh, the key club, these groups that would meet on a regular basis. And what was important is not the, the, the subject matter. It didn't matter if you went bowling or if you went to church. What mattered was that you had something on your calendar that held time for you to be with other people. That's the important element that so many people don't have in their life. They don't have that regularly scheduled appointment with their loved ones, with their friends. And that I think is a big mistake. And so this is the cure is to, to make that time, to hold that time. So what we do is we, we sit down once a week and we look at our calendar. There's a, a free tool that I built online. Anybody can access it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the link in the show notes. It's on my blog, nearandfar.com. It's a schedule maker tool. Okay. And it's this free tool. Anybody can use it. Uh, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. All it is is basically a template for the next seven days. So instead of making a five-year vision or a, 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 a vision board or a plan for you know what you're going to regret on your deathbed, h- how about we just start with next week? <laughs> right? How about we just start with the next seven days? What would this next seven days look like for you to live out your values? Your values around taking care of yourself, taking care of your relationships, and taking care of your work. How would you divide up that time? And when you do that, now you can look at that calendar. You'll have a, a physical manifestation of what you want, how you want to live out your values. And so that's, that's a very, very important uh, step to becoming indistractable. For sure. I mean, it, it is so crucial. And I love that. I, you know, I love reducing the time frame down to just seven days. I mean, look at the next seven days of your life and see what you're going to do. I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to see what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, and, and life turns, uh, tends to turn on a dime. And so, you know, yeah, I, I love that you introduce so much of a perceptual shift in the way that we are perceiving, you know, not only technology, but, you know, just our understanding of how the role that technology plays in our lives and, and, you know, what these apps are actually doing. And, and it, and also just, bringing your willpower, you know, back and, and giving it back to you. I think that's important. I think that's crucial to, you know, being effective in all of this is realizing that you have, you have the power to change this. And, you know, in, in the first moment that you realize that it, it's going to free up, you know, this, this oppressive sense that, you know, big bad technology is taking and controlling your life. Um, yeah, I want to get into some of the hacks that there, you there's talk- one. There's oh, one thing I wanted to, to mention real quick, though, sure. with, with, when it comes to willpower. It, it, the, the, the research shows us that self-control and willpower don't work, that in the moment, it's too late to require us to, to uh, rely upon willpower and self-control, that most people, most of the time, if they have to rely on willpower and self-control, will fail, that what we, what we want to do is to not need willpower and self-control in the moment, because you know, if there's one mantra I want people to remember from this book, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So if we wait until we require self-control, we will fail. If you wait until the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you wait till the cigarette is lit, you're going to smoke it. If you wait and put your cell phone on your nightstand, of course, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning before you even say hello to your loved one. Mm-hmm. because it's too late. These companies are going to win. They're going to get you because you've waited until the last minute. Instead of willpower, instead of self-control, you need a system. You need to plan in advance, right? The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. And once you have that system in place, you don't need willpower and self-control anymore. Mm. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it so much. I mean, there's there's so many takeaways from everything we've talked about tonight. And I mean, I think even the book, I, I highly recommend anyone listening to this to 100% pick up this book and check it out because there's, I mean, we were limited on time and we didn't cover everything. Um, yeah, we near, only got to step two or four. <laughs> I know, right? So, I mean, why don't we why don't we attempt to cover those since we sure. you know open that door? Let's let's commit to that. Yeah, sounds good. Happy to. So the the two steps we didn't cover. So step number one to review is master the internal triggers, and there's three big tactics that you can use to master the internal triggers. Uh, there is step number two, which is about making time for traction. We talked about that one a lot around making sure that we turn our values into time. The step three that we didn't get to is about hacking back the external triggers. So the external triggers we talked about a bit, this is about the pings, dings, and rings, all of these things in our environment that can lead us towards distraction. And it turns out that we can hack back those external triggers. You know, we all know that these technology companies are in business to hack our attention. I use the word hack in the, in the, in the way that a, you, you think about a computer hacker, uh, to hack in computer hacker parlance means to gain unauthorized access to something. No doubt about it, every media company out there, whether it's the news uh, on, on, on cable media or the newspaper or the internet or a social media, all of them are hacking your attention. They make money by turning your attention into dollars. They monetize your eyeballs. Does anybody not know that? Does anybody not know that Facebook and CNN and ABC all make money and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they all make money by selling ads? Of course we do. We all know that. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. We can hack back. We can do things to thwart their attempt to sell our attention. And so I give people these tools. Many of them are absolutely free that there are all these technology tools out there that we can change our devices, our computers, our machines in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving them. And so I tell you how to hack back your phone, hack back your computer, hack back other things that have nothing to do with technology. For example, meetings. Oh my God, how much time do we spend in pointless meetings in corporate America? It's such a huge waste of time. How do we hack back those meetings so that they don't waste all our, our entire day? How do we hack back the open floor plan office? The number one source of distraction in the modern American workforce is not the cell phone. 80% of survey respondents said the number one source of distraction was their colleagues. Somebody tapping you on the shoulder and say, hey, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? That turned out to be the number one source of distraction. I tell you how to hack back those external triggers. So that's step number two. I'm uh, sorry, step number three, that's hacking back the external triggers. Step number three. Step number four is about preventing distraction with pacts. Now, pacts are these, what we call a pre-commitment device. This is where we make some kind of commitment now to prevent us from getting distracted later. Uh, and so there's all kinds of things we can do. There's three types of pacts. There's an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. Uh, these are promises we make to ourselves or to others to prevent us from going off track. And so I tell you exactly how to do that. That's the last uh, and final step after we've used the other three steps in the model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I love this book, man, and you know, I'd, and you. I think I think I maybe misinterpreted at the beginning the digital detox. You know, I thought you were for that. I mean, and I must have just mistaken that. Uh, I apologize. Um, you know, <laughs> but I I wanted to, you know, it's I I wanted to, you know, give you a chance to kind of wrap this all together, you know, for. You know, people who are, I, I think, you know, sometimes I, I'll be on Twitter or something and I will see, you know, someone post, you know, they'll, they will ironically, they will post about taking a digital detox. You know, they will, you, they will make a post saying that they're not going to be making any, any posts. You know, it's weird. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, so let's, let's wrap this all together. Let's say that, you know, we want to create these more meaningful moments with the people that we care about, the people that we love. I mean, this is, this is what life is truly about. You know, it's, it's not about being on your phone all the time. And I find, I find often that it's people, you know, because of, because of the way they treat technology or allow technology to treat them, they have, 
become uh, sort of like zombies, you know, and it's it's difficult to mm. even have a conversation or look a person in the eye. They they don't yeah. do that anymore. Yeah. And, you know, they're so used to texting that, that when you try to have a conversation, you don't know what's going on, you know, it's, and so I, I'm just, right, right. you know, and for Particularly those, when, when it comes to social engagements, right? Have you seen yeah. how people go out to lunch or dinner together and you're with a bunch of friends and somehow, Hey, I thought we were all going to, you know, spend time together. Why, why is everyone checking their phones? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I actually, I actually give a, an antidote to that. There's a, there's a very simple technique you can use. Maybe, maybe I could share that real quick of, of what do you do when you go out to uh, some kind of social gathering and everyone's on their phone or some people are on their phone and you're like, hey, are we supposed to be spending time, you know, socializing here? So there's a simple technique you can use. The good news is most people are getting the message that this is rude, right? Most people know that that if you go out to lunch with somebody to check your phone is is not a very polite thing to do. And so one of the ways that we can we can prevent this antisocial behavior is by asking one question. And this question uh, needs to be sincere. And it also needs to be humble enough to recognize that we may not rec- we may not know what's happening on the other side of that screen. You, you don't know if somebody's checking their phone because there's some kind of emergency in their life. Uh, there's something, you know, their kid's sick from school. Who knows? There, sure. there could be all kinds of things happening. So there is one question that I think can help people reassess why they're on their device, which, and this question sounds like this, and you have to ask it very sincerely. The question is, I see you're on your phone. Is everything okay? (laughs) And when you ask that simple question, hey, I see you're on your phone. Is everything okay? Two things will happen. Either they'll say, oh, you know what? I'm so sorry. There's this emergency I have to take care of. And hopefully they'll do that and and come back to the conversation as soon as they're done. Or, and this is what happens nine times out of 10, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they'll put it away. They're realizing what you're implying and they'll put it away. Now, what, you know, this, this takes a bit of guts. Okay. I, I, I will acknowledge that, it requires people to, to step up and sometimes be outside of their comfort zone in asking people this question. But here's the thing. We've been here before. So in the 1980s, when about 40% of the U.S. population smoked, uh, I remember as a child, uh, you know, I, I, some of my first memories were, were in the 1980s. I was born in the 1970s, but I, I can remember the 1980s. And I remember in the mid-1980s, we had ashtrays in our living room. My parents didn't smoke, and yet we had ashtrays in our living room. Why? Because back in the 80s, if somebody came over to your house, they just expected to smoke in your living room. They didn't care. <laughs> they smoked wherever they wanted to. That's, I mean, it's hard for people to understand this. If you were born after like 1985, you never saw this world. That's the way the world used to be. Well, what changed? Was, was there ever a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No, there's never been a law that says you can't smoke in someone's home. And yet today, if someone came over to your house and just lit up a cigarette, you would throw them out, right? That would be totally unacceptable. <laughs> that would be completely rude. So what happened? What happened is we started spreading what's called social antibodies. I remember when my mom threw away the ashtrays and when someone came over, one of her friends came over and lit up a cigarette. She said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, please go outside. (gasps) And this was so rude to ask someone to go smoke outside. This was so different. And she had to go out on a limb and and be a little uncomfortable. But of course, today, nobody would dream of smoking in your living room. And that's exactly the same thing we have to do. I'm looking for those people who are willing to help me with this crusade of helping the world become indistractable by going out on a limb by maybe at times doing things that are a little different from the norm, right? By, by, by using some of these practices to become indistractable ourselves, to set a good example, but also to hold others to account too. When we, we use technology inappropriately, we need to spread these social antibodies so that other people learn the right time and place to use their devices, just as my mom spread those social antibodies around the wrong uh, time and place to smoke. 100%. Absolutely. I agree so much. I mean, it, it couldn't be more accurate. And it is rude. It is incredibly rude. And, and I have something, it's, it's a little bit funny near, I have something that's a bit of the opposite of that. Have you ever tried, I call it the cell phone yawn? 
where you're, What's you'll that? be in like a group of people and you just, as a test, you just take out your phone and pretend to look at it and then observe and see. It's like a chain reaction. Everyone around <laughs> yeah. you will start to also look at their phone. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. I mean, we, that's, I think that's why it's so important. Books like this and the work that you're doing so crucial. Um, near where can people go to pick up the book? Um, I know it came out last year in September, but it's probably available Amazon, your website. Give us all of that, please. Yeah. So my website is at nearandfar.com and it's, uh, the book is available at indistractable.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually a, a free uh, video and guide that you can all get there. If you keep your order number from wherever you buy the book, whether you buy it on Amazon or your local bookseller, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you enter in that order number, you can get this free video that I have there as well as an 80-page workbook. And all of that is at indistractable.com. Perfect. Guys, we are going to get out of here. I mean, what an amazing episode with my guest, Nir Ayal. And I mean, it's, it's so prescient. It, I mean, it's, this is what we need to know more than ever now. Um, you know, as, as things evolve and we start to you know, get to a point where technology, I mean, it's going to be VR. Everyone's going to be on VR soon, right? So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you're on our YouTube channel, make sure you click the like and subscribe. And if you can get over to iTunes, if you're listening to the podcast version of this, leave us a review. Thank you so much for your time. And my guest, the book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, Near Ayal. Thank you guys so much. 